Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So then the question is, what can I do that's yeah. in my control? Do I have to train harder? right? To make sure my sleep is good. That's in my control, right? Do I make sure my mitochondrial juices are flowing, that we've got enough charge in the mitochondria to make sure that we can get the results we need so that my muscles are twitching in the right way? Do I need to learn about what it takes? Do I talk to people who've passed this process before? So there's that kind of stuff that is in your control that you can manage. All righty. Do I have an awesome podcast for you this week? I talked to Garj Ravachandra, a clinical psychologist and co-founder of Compass, with a K, Consultancy. Garj works with organisations to enhance talent management initiatives and their leadership capability. We discuss mental toughness and resilience, funny that, and how this influences one's reactions, views and especially leadership strategies. Garj poses lots of interesting questions that are aligned with human optimization, like having a critical mindset, managing your strengths and mitigating your weaknesses and improving on your overall leadership. There is also an entire discussion on regaining control from situations where it seems like there just is no control. Alrighty, just a reminder that we are under a month out now from the Echelon Front Muster. Enter Warrior U at checkout for a massive discount, it's like $1,200 off. Right, that's being held Sydney 4th and 5th, December, www.echelonfront.com forward slash muster dash 009. Before we get into the podcast, a shout out to my sponsors this week. And as some of you may or may not have heard last week, World of Tanks is sponsoring the podcast for the whole of November. Wargaming.net takes historical accuracy really seriously. They research the tanks and also they replicate the conditions that they would have fought in. Did you know that wargaming.net actually donated one of the few Australian-made tanks that are left, the AC-1 Sentinel, to the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum. I didn't know that. You can register for World of Tanks by following the link in the show notes or visiting www.tanks.ly forward slash warrior one. www.tanks.ly forward slash warrior one. And entering in warrior U-W-O-T for World of Tanks. Warrior UWOT into the redeem code section to receive three days of premium time, a tank, and much more. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by my main sponsors, Aussie Strength and Ironside Coffee. Both are veteran-owned businesses. Ironside Coffee is also supporting the Echelon Front Muster in December. Check out the Ironside Coffee website for so much more than just coffee. And it's home delivered. And Aussie Strength. They have some amazing deals on their website at the moment. Go and check them out. Go and buy someone a ball or buy someone some weights or something for Christmas. www.aussiestrength.com.au Righto, let's get on with the show. Gosh, welcome to the Warrior You podcast. Thank you, Bram. Great to be here. Why don't you start by just telling the listeners and myself a little bit more about yourself and, and Compass before we just to build your credentials up before we blast right into it. <laughs> sure. So I'm a psychologist by training, sort of... Uh, Born in Sri Lanka, moved to Australia when I was four years old. I moved to Canberra, the capital, and obviously um, went to sort of study through that process, interested in people. And I think I was always fascinated by the differences in people. And so psychology, I think, felt like a very natural thing for me. Mm. So I went on to, to study that. I did some postgrad stuff and then started working in companies that were a little bit more international. Mm. And then in 2008, I turned uh, 30. And I had like a mini pre-midlife crisis and thought, what the hell am I doing with my life? What do I want to be doing? So my wife and I decided to have a bit of an adventure. Mm. So we actually um, decided to take a job with a partner client of ours in the Middle East. Mm. Never stepped foot there, never been there, just heard about it. Awesome. And it was the best decision I think we've made in our lives. Yeah. Um, So took our families there. Then we went to, we stayed there for about nine years. Mm. 
and then moved the family back about three years ago. But because we set up the business uh, compass about six years ago, mm. um, I'm usually back every month, mm. um, sort of travelling around, mm. and then half the time in, in Sydney. Mm. Yeah. And what does Compass do? So we look at performance, mm. careers, and leadership. They're the kind of three key areas mm. uh, that we focus on. So we have kind of business schools that we work with. We have uh, corporate and government institutions. And then we have you know, sort of sporting teams and, and athletes yeah. uh, that we do some work with as well. Yeah. And is the stuff that you do with, say, the government entities the same sort of principles that you work with with sporting entities? Yeah, there's a lot of crossover, right, I guess, between sport and, and sort of corporate and government. Mm. You know, what's really fascinating is the idea that, you know, we're all corporate athletes. We're all athletes, right? And I think this mindset of how do I bring in a personal best approach into my life? God, you're rolling out the A-grade stuff right now, aren't you? We haven't even got into it. Right, <laughs> Sorry. Eh? No, do it. Oh, let me, do let it. me change. It's the, you know, that mindset I find really fascinating and mm. I think – particularly for young talent coming through. And, and you've been in the Middle East, you've lived there. Mm. And there's this whole agenda around nationalisation, right, mm. empowering the local people to be able to run their country. Mm. And you know, I love the concept of that. You know, and, and you know, the thing that actually took us there was that Sheikh Mohammed, when he went through and wrote the, I think it was the 2030 plan, mm. actually three out of the five things that are the pillars are all people-related, mm. right? It's about how do you take out people, and make them better versions of themselves. Mm. I don't think I've seen a country or a region that actually has focused that amount mm. on its actual people and developing their people. Mm. So where else better for an org psych to go? Isn't that interesting? Mm. And you look at you look at the population of Australia and you, you look at the people in Australia that are driving things here mm. and then you look at the opportunities that they don't have compared to the opportunities that the Emiratis had, for instance, and then the, the pace of change of Dubai, for instance, and also all of a sudden you've got all these expats running everything. And then 20 years later you've got a generational change where, oh, I want to use the word spoil, but it's not spoil. It's, it's almost like they're not used to being able to do things themselves. So that emiratization really was about let's do some of this stuff ourselves as part of an almost a broader nationalism, if that makes any sense. Whereas I don't think Australia has that same sort of problem because we don't have the same immigration laws. You can't hire people to come and run things. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, something happened that was really interesting a couple of months ago. The leadership decided to publish the best and worst performing government departments. Oh, gosh. So you can imagine how that went down. Do it was about getting transparency. Mm. So the bottom five were announced and the top five were publicly announced. And so immediately changes took place, mm. right? I mean, that kind of transparency you're not going to get in most no. places. So th th there's a curve. There's a it's an efficiency. It's a German efficiency almost, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? That's right. Wow. I want to ask you straight up front, you know, organisational psychology, mm. what is the difference in your mind between resilience and mental toughness or is there a difference between resilience and mental toughness? Mm. It's a good question. So according to the research, the two main elements of resilience are really around control and commitment. Mm. So control being, you know, do I believe I'm in control of my life? Can I make the changes that mm. are required that, are, that I can control? It's controlling the controllables, if you like, mm. Mm. and then also managing your emotions in the right way. But then it's also about this sense of sticking to the task until I get done. You know, if, if I come across a problem, am I going to make sure that I throw everything at it mm. that I can? And so... When we look at the terminology, I think there is a lot of crossover between mm. those two things. Mm. What I liked about you know some of the models that you might have seen today um, at that tech sort of session was yeah. really around this idea of how do we combine confidence mm. and challenge, mm. right? That sort of interpersonal confidence, confidence in yourself, but also about overcoming problems and the mindset you choose to use to overcome that. Mm. Those two additional factors aren't necessarily always covered by resilience in the research sense, if you like. Right? right. I think everyone has their own interpretation of it, but I think resilience with a couple of additional factors gives us a much more complete model. Okay, so control the controllables, mm. controlling the variables. So, for instance, I'm stuck in traffic. I can't control that. But what I can control, according to Viktor Frankl, mm. is the stimulus response. So... This thing's happening in front of me, the traffic's building up. I can't control that, but what I can control is losing my mind over it. 
Absolutely. So I can. So that's that's an example. Yeah, it's an example. Mm. So, for example, you know, if you're stuck in traffic, you might decide, you know what, I haven't listened to Bram talk about stuff on the podcast recently, huh. so I might actually go in and do that. Right. That's an example, right? right. So it's about you know your behaviour, mm. which is this cycle that runs our life. So if you were given therapy to somebody, right? We have mm. this therapy process called cognitive behaviour therapy, mm. Um, mm. CBT. It is the connection between how your behaviour is driven by your feelings mm. and how your feelings is driven by your thoughts. Your thoughts, yeah. So you control your thoughts and, and you know this better than most, right? Mm. Your thoughts become, drive everything. Mm. They become you. Become things. Yeah. Thoughts become things. Mm. Yeah, so if Viktor Frankl famously said there's that space in between stimulus and response and you own that space, mm. how can someone remind themselves? Is there physical cues that you can use to stop yourself from reacting in the moment and owning that space because mm. I do think it's a powerful thing for, mm. for people to hear about and maybe even to build up some sort of a repertoire of mm. stimulus response that isn't necessarily straight away. Thought comes into mind, mind opens mouth, garbage comes out, <laughs> you lose your job. You know? Yeah, there's a, there's a yeah. sequence, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I don't know if you guys, uh, anyone here is, is listening and, and yourself have ever watched Bad Boys? I've not movie? seen it, but no. I've heard of it, yeah. So there's a particular scene in the second one where uh, Martin Lawrence, who's, who's prone to anger, right. right, he does this thing where he pulls his earlobes and goes, wooza, wooza. And this is his way of reminding him about calming down, right? And these are called anchors. Mm. And so anchors are a way of connecting your, your thoughts to your body. Mm. So, for example, if you're in a room and you're hearing some rubbish coming out of someone's mouth and it's making you angry, now how do you choose to respond in that situation? So if you start to understand your body and how it reacts, you can then start to trigger the thought process. Now, it might be that you can even simply by pressing your fingers, touching your fingers, mm. you actually start to associate more positive emotion mm. right, to things. And this is a technique that a lot of people use, particularly when they're anxious. They might be presenting something, going into their performance review. They're about to get shipped off for duty. There are certain things that you know, are going to create a certain amount of stress and anxiety. What we can do is to trigger things behaviorally that actually start to impact our thoughts, which mm. remind us about the feelings. Mm. And when you get that cycle in control, then you can start to short circuit, mm. if you like, how you might normally behave. Mm. So it's just sometimes preempting that. So if you know you're about to go into a meeting with a person that really presses your buttons, right, or irritates you, yep. mentally just getting ready for that so you can do a preemptive strike. But then while you're in it, while it's happening, you're just – keeping that top of mind. So, you yeah. know, I'm not going to let this person bait me, right? It's not going to happen. And I'm going to keep my calm. Because, in fact, sometimes keeping calm is the thing that diffuses the situation, right? Because mm. that person's trying to get a rise. Yeah. What was the other C? So there was control. What was the next one? Commitment is the other one. Commitment. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So so building mental toughness through commitment mm. to – commitment is different than motivation, yeah, it's a good question, actually. So, you know, when AQR uh, International came up with this framework, one of the things that they were looking at is about this concept of stickability, sticking to the task mm. until it gets done. And, you know, lots of researchers have kind of looked at that as a way of, you know, driving yourself. Now, you can be motivated in different ways. I was talking to a mum the other day who was complaining that her son was lazy, right? right. He just wasn't doing any work. I said, well, actually don't believe in laziness. I think you're just motivated to not do anything, Yeah. right? right. You probably use the same amount of energy to not do stuff as it, do, as it takes to actually do something else. Mm. But there's a lot of willpower. So it's about tapping into that willpower and then reversing it, or mm. flipping it on its head. Mm. And so that commitment piece is about can I stick to something? And I, you know, talking about it today with you is about this idea of when you start something, you finish it. Right. Right, and that's one of the biggest determinants of whether mm. someone can be successful or not. What about when you're like me and you start lots of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also about finding that balance, right? Yeah. I and mean, there's going to be a lot of things that you'll start that just don't gel. Yeah. And so a lot of people will say, you know, it's it's better to quit early mm. if you can feel that this it's is not. Turn, this is turning into a Bram Connolly therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you're lying down on the couch, mate. It's yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Visual. Yeah. The um. So the key thing is then knowing when to quit. Yeah. Right. And I think um, the hard part around that. Oh, I've got that written down right in front of me. I've I've got written down. Ask, gosh, let to let go when failing and how to do that. Yeah, that's a tough one. Mm. Right? If you think about one of the big failures you might have had in your life, mm. how did you kind of move on from mm. that? What did you do? 
Yeah, I mean, I've had lots of failures. I think you've had have to fail at lots of things to grow personally. So I take on things that are beyond me quite often. People might be surprised to hear that. I have a real problem with with not letting go of things that aren't working mm. and trying to work through them to make them work, whether or not that can be a financial issue or can it can be a time issue or project issue. Mm. If they're not that big a deal, I still continue to hang on to stuff, which is a bit of an issue for me. But back one step. So commitment. And I was thinking about, well, you may have heard me say before that motivation is fleeting, but consistency builds champions, you know. And I think I now understand that it's that consistent application that creates commitment not necessarily like jump out of bed, I'm all sprightly and let's do this because yeah. I'm motivated. Because yeah. I don't think – I think motivation is – yeah, I, don't, I just don't think it works for 90% of the population. Yeah. Unless you're an Olympic athlete and there's a gold medal. Mm. And everyone's got different levels of aspiration, right? Mm. There's this great formula that people use around this. So the first part is skill times effort gives you talent. Right. Right? That's great. Talent's yeah. great, but there are loads of people around who have yeah. talent. I've heard this before. I've got something similar in this new book I'm writing, but it's, yeah. it also has about the environment. And the, the people that you're around, so skill, talent, mm. plus the environment, the mm. op- plus the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the second part is then talent is not enough and therefore talent times more focused effort mm. gives you achievement. Right. Right. That's the part that most people crumble at. Mm. Right. So how do you then take something that you've been good at and maybe you're – good piano player i mean look at my ability to play the piano right i got to grade three gave up i just didn't have focused effort Mm. there's not a single day that i don't walk past a piano now and wish i could play a piano Mm. i could go back and actually do that and i think that that's a part of you know how do you at the time trigger those thoughts to give you almost a future back kind of process right this is in the future what is that going to look like would it be cool to walk past an instrument and be able to pick it up and mm. just have a jam, mm. right? And it's that kind of thinking. Mm. Having the right people around you to help you to do that, usually it's not your parents, mm. right? Your parents telling you stuff to do things. It's about having a community of people. Your tribe. A tribe, absolutely. Finding that tribe and finding it early. Yeah. So that tribe could be a musical tribe, for instance, like my son's found the fact that he wants to be the next Bon Jovi and he's mm. 10 and he can play the drums and he goes to school of rock and, and that's a tribe. <laughs> mm. But it could be as well things like oh, like that Warrior U program that we set up. There's a lot of the kids there talk to each other about mm. joining the military and so on and so forth. Cadet units, mm. you know, that's a type of tribe. I guess triathlon team, you know, school swim squads, things like that. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think about the idea from a psychologist's perspective? You know, I, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, work on your weaknesses and really hone in on them. But I'm a, I'm a massive believer in working on my strengths and mitigating my weaknesses and I learnt that through a combat mindset and through being in combat. Mm. Like if I've got weaknesses, I protect those weaknesses but I don't expose them. Mm. What I do is I find my strengths and I shove my strengths down the enemy's throat. Like, But what do you think from a, from a day-to-day business perspective or from a day-to-day, you know, university, whatever, you know, is it, should we be developing our strengths or should we be evening it out? It's a good question. I think it depends on what your outcomes are going to be. If you want to be the best at what you do, I don't think I've really ever come across anybody who's great at everything. Mm. And therefore, Mm. the principle is, what am I going to focus on? If I've got X amount of energy in each day Mm. and X amount of time and intellectual capacity to offer to things, where would I spend that time to really get the return that I want? Do I want to become the world best swimmer, right? I know you're getting down to 10% body fat or something, right? You've been talking about it on your... (laughs) Don't even bring that up. People will be emailing me. (laughs) We'll want to see pictures. I think that's what's going to happen. (laughs) So there's a mindset around what are my strengths that allow me to get to 10% body fat? Mm. What do I do better than everybody else? Eat. Eat? (laughs) (laughs) Run, right? Whatever it is, right? Swim, whatever. And I think if you you look at some of the great interviews of Mm. elite athletes... I'm pretty sure it might have been Phelps when he used to say, you know, why don't you – someone asked him in an interview, why don't you swim other strokes, right? You did breaststroke or backstroke or something. And I think his response at the time was something like, well, I could do that, but if I did that, I'd be spending time on something that is not my strength. Right? Mm. That means my freestyle could potentially become weaker, mm. right? So I think having that mindset around, well, where am I going with all this? Mm. If I want to become a generalist – 
that stuff. Sure. I love it. I love that word. Yeah. Because I want to ask you about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, then it might be worthwhile kind of looking yeah. at key elements of your yeah. weaknesses and so forth. But if you want to be world class at something, yeah. right, how are you going to overplay your strengths? Mm. Because that is the point of difference mm. that we tend to find with, with elite athletes and even top CEOs and, and musicians and, and so forth as well. And they mm. can't do everything. Right. There's there's a body of work that's come out recently. I'm not sure it's academic, but we seem to be on a we seem to be in a renaissance at the moment of leadership and human optimization thought. Mm-hmm. And the body of work is around being a generalist in a specialist world. I'll link to it on the show notes. And mm-hmm. it other than someone like Tiger Woods, who that sport is a it's a simple sport with instantaneous feedback. And I don't mean simple as it's easy, it's not, but it has it doesn't have the same aspect and the same complexity for instance that you know rugby union or aussie rules or triathlon or something like that would have or bjj but what is being more and more purported is that generalists when they're younger so people who've played a multitude of sports become better at something than someone who is a specialist in that especially in a complex sport because they're able to you know, move in different directions, that they're able to breathe in different patterns, they're able to lift and throw and run and dodge and jump and weave. And I think that's interesting in the world that we're in at the moment is that there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people think they have to be a specialist mm. to fit specialist roles and yet generalists are the ones who are running everything. And, in fact, there was some research done for every department that you go into in a business every separate department is three years closer to being the CEO mm, as mm. opposed to being a specialist in one department. Yes, absolutely. And I think you touched upon a really important point about leadership mm. versus performance, mm. right? And so this concept of how do I take a bunch of people who are sometimes very different mm. on a journey is almost very quite different to that performance side, right, mm. about mm-hmm. I want to get the best return for my shareholders in this particular case. What are we going to be the best at? Of course, you need a bunch of people around you who've got certain skills and capabilities as opposed to a swimmer or an Ironman, right, who's going to focus on very specific things mm. um, to be able to get an outcome to be also world-class mm. but just in a different way. And I think this whole concept of leadership, you're right, the delayed gratification on leadership Mm. is significant, right? You don't, Tiger Woods gets it immediately, CEO of a company, you might have to wait three to six months, right, to start to see cultural change or years. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. See the share price consistently up, whatever Mm. it might be. Delayed gratification of leadership. We're onto something here. Mm. And I'm thinking more and more these days that we're all focusing, you may have read this, we're, we're more and more focusing on leadership and we're forgetting management. And I don't, they seem, they, Who's they? It seems to me that the world, our culture, our shared norms are slowly making management seem an evil practice and leadership this glorified business of fan building. But I think a lot of what's going wrong with a lot of good businesses is that they don't invest time and effort and money into building good management structured practices. Mm. I think it's a, it's a really good point. I think there's there's a big divide, right, in terms of how you would look at management. In the old days, it was transactional, right? It was very much task-driven mm. and that's the way we needed to work. If you look at how what, – what are people like these days coming into the workforce, mm. right? They don't want that approach. They want freedom. Mm. Right? They want flexibility. They want the opportunity to work from home or to be able to work on multiple tasks at any given time. Mm. They don't want to be told what to do. Mm. And as a result of that – management has had to change. Mm. Otherwise, you lose potentially good people. Mm. Now, we're telling people on one hand, engage your left brain and your right brain and are going to come together at work, right? But then do our systems, our styles support people actually being creative, Mm. engaging with our right brains as opposed to being analytical with our left brains? Massive shift Mm. um, that people need to undertake around that. And is it possible a manager, so someone who's in a management role, probably is not going to be equipped to handle a workforce who are working remotely disparate across, mm. you know, across multiple bearers and, you know, computer systems and the like, as opposed to a leader who's taking everyone on a journey. It doesn't matter perhaps how that's happening. Yeah, I think that, that sense of, you know, one of my favourite quotes around leadership is, you know, bringing certainty to uncertain environments, mm. right? So as a leader, how do you do that? Now, a manager will need to do that on a daily basis as well. Mm. In a lot of cases, I think they get stuck on the task 
as opposed to just stepping back a little bit mm. and looking at you know what is the purpose of this? How do I go back to them? How do I show my people that they're still heading in the right direction? You know, maybe people are becoming a little bit more autonomous mm. in a lot of ways, right? They've got the skill sets. They're learning it earlier on in their lives. Mm. What is the impact for that on manager? It's a good question. What's your definition of leadership? I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, I, I do like that definition. I know you've got a fantastic one from Simon Sinek mm. uh, that you tend to use. Mm. I think for me, leadership is about creating more stability yeah. towards a particular goal, huh. right? And we live in such a crazy world. You know, mm. we talked about this VUCA world earlier today of volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous. Volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. Mm. VUCA, I love it. Trust the business schools to come up with this stuff, right? Mm. So it's uh, it's one of those things where... You're looking out the window now. It doesn't look too volatile, <laughs> I'm uncertain. sitting in a nice spot in Perth. I think it's actually pretty pretty impressive. Mm. I think the key thing is, you know, how do we how do we digest that yeah. as leaders? Yeah. Acknowledge that this is happening with our people mm. and then say, look, what can I do to create a sense of stability? Yeah. It's human nature, right? Yeah. To feel a sense of comfort and security. Yeah. So if we can do that as a leader, that... I think is one of the biggest challenges we face. Right. And so the Simon Sinek definition of leadership is to get other people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. Do what you want them to do because they want to do it. It's very pop culture. I like it because it's easy to digest by emerging leaders that I'm working with or training. But I don't necessarily love it from an academic perspective because I think it misses out a whole raft of things the main thing is place. Mm. So, and this has been brought to my attention by someone with a PhD in this field, so it's not my work. Mm. But place is really important for leadership because place can be the place where you are, so it can be the environment, or place can be the position you have in the society or the culture that you're in, so it's the physical place of the leader, or place can be the point at time now where you are in your journey, in your life's journey. So your emotional intelligence journey, you're willing to accept the changes of societal values around, mm. you know, around LGBTI, women in the workforce, all these things. That's play. It's all place. So the place you're at, the place you're at with your, your life, the, the place that the organisation's at. But I try and explain that to leaders that it's mm. situational with place and it's too complex mm. and that's because leadership actually is really complex and it's not as simple as the beautiful definition that Simon Sinek gives us mm. which is great for moving people forward as better leaders mm. but it's not the full story yes absolutely there um, was no question about that. <laughs> um, it's just a statement I mean it reminds me of this thing around the the dark triad yeah, okay. Right? Tell me about that. So the concept that... That sounds evil. Yeah, it does. It's a bit like a... Have you, got, it, have you got a good Darth Vader voice? I don't. <laughs> is it evil? It's not evil. Okay. Right? I, I think in psychology we have this thing where you've got this combination of narcissism, right. right? This sense that you are better than everybody else and this sense of arrogance and so forth. Machiavellianism, which is about manipulating people, right? And then about psychopathy, which is about being emotionless, yeah. right? And what you do. Now, going back to that Simon Sinek quote, I, I, I think it's a great quote. Mm. And what I like about it is it taps into that Machiavellianism piece. It's the strategic manipulation of people. Mm. Now, any of those three things, I think, in the dark triad tend to be dark and evil if they are for your own personal gain. Right. right? So if you are doing it, however, for the greater good of the community mm. or the greater good of you know, your team, the organisation, mm. the family, mm. there might be some real credit right, to using elements of that. And the example is obviously, you know, with people like, for example, John Howard, Prime Minister John Howard, mm. when he had to, you know, really be quite strong in each of those elements to kind of ensure that he got those that gun legislation passed in 12 days mm. after the Port Arthur Massacre. Phenomenal effort. Yeah. Mm. So how, you know, in examples like that, mm. you need to tap into elements of this mm. for the greater good. Yeah. And I think sometimes we have boxed, you know, elements like the dark triad and said, look, we, we shouldn't go down that path. But actually when you open that hinge a mm. little bit, you start to see some benefits. So you can't be confident unless you have a degree of narcissism? There's a massive correlation and the research tells us that you need, you need confidence mm. to have those elements of narcissism, obviously. Mm. It's just that when the narcissism is being used for personal gain only mm. that it can be quite destructive. I've met someone who's Machiavellian, true, and 
is astounding to me the self promoting mm. at every opportunity and I'm and I'm fascinated by it truly fascinated by it and I've met someone who has psychopathy in fact it's interesting to watch that more so than the you know someone who's machiavellian <laughs> because the the complete and utter void of emotion around who they are and there's a lot of a lot of CEOs are have psychopathic tendencies, don't they? <laughs> Absolutely. There was that great book, right, Snakes in Suits, right. uh, that talked about that. Mm. I think it was one in ten, right? yeah. at that kind of leadership level who demonstrate that. And mm. if we think about particularly crisis management, mm. right, you don't want people running around in a crisis mm. that are just throwing away emotion left, right and centre. Yeah. You want people controlled mm. and, you know, feeling like and when you look up to them, you have a sense of direction mm. um, from them. And it doesn't mean that they have no emotion. Mm. It's just that at certain times they might have to be emotionless to get through a tough situation or context. Yeah, I'm looking back at, you know, critical incidents in Afghanistan and, and know that I have those traits that I – but that's a tr- very trained thing too. Like I, I know to take a step back and to evaluate the situation, orientate, observe, decide, act. It's drilled into us, you know, to the point where – you know, a vehicle could blow up in front of me and I would not react emotionally to that. It's like, okay, we're now doing the following things. That just scares the crap out of me. Well, it, I mean, I'm not an unemotional person. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. Hmm. Maybe I am. I would have just, I mean, it's amazing that you've done that. Do you think that's a, what element of that was was training versus sort of a natural style you might Love have? this. Because you and I have, think the same about a lot of things but I think that our resilience and mental toughness piece is a little bit different mm. but that's because I'm still on, on a journey learning it same here. from an academic perspective yeah, perhaps same. yeah look I think that I'm a little bit of a genetic freak mm. genetically I think that I come from a long line of males who are very reserved and have the ability to be resilient genetically resilient I also believe that resilience is what you bring to the party right now. Mm. So it's around, you know, a large part of it is genetic, let's say more than 50%. And then there's diet, then there's fitness level, mental health, how much fluid you've had in the last 24 hours, how much food you've had, how the mitochondria is loaded with carbohydrates. It's all Absolutely. it's all around resilience is all around the, the ability to bounce back mm. to your current state which is the the definition of resiliency, I believe is fostered around a whole heap of things that are variable and one piece which isn't, which is your genetics. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Yes, so, so I think that I was, and I mean... Special Forces officers are specially selected, specially trained. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for that, as many yeah. emergency services are too, actually. They're Absolutely. looking for that in their HR process. Do you think um, as a result of that genetic sort of load that your resilience could drop over yeah. time? Yeah, I think so. And I, think, and I feel like it is now. And, and, but I counter that. You see, and the way that I counter that is I think you have two separate vessels. One is your resilience and one is your mental toughness. And if your resilience is high, you don't need to draw on your mental toughness as quick. But if your resilience, if you're a low resilient person and you have a negative bias, mm. then I believe focus on building mental toughness. Mm. Because if you build those frames of reference and you've done more arduous things before and you've wargamed those things and you've visualized failure, yeah. then it's easier for you to bounce back and become resilient. You don't have to tap into your resiliency as much. So you know, for instance, my there'd be things that could happen in my life that would that I would take a big hit from, mm. and I would get through it through mental toughness at some point. And I think it's a wonderful example, right? I think we're probably more similar than, oh, perhaps. than, than mm. yeah. And I think one of the key things is that there was a guy, Carl Jung, who did a lot of work under Freud, yep. 
And he came up with this thing called archetypes, yep. right? Archetypes are the things passed down from generation to generation, right? It's almost like a personality trait. Yeah. I think what science is finding is that some of that is hardwired in our DNA. Yep. Yeah. I have no – epigenetically you can yep. probably tap into it. Yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah. So it's very true. And you think about kids being mm. brought up in the same family and some of them are just complete opposites mm. with the same environmental conditions, all these different factors that are consistent. Mm. You wonder how is this – that not just small variations that you might find in some parenting technique every now and again, but we're talking polar extremes, right, in some personalities. Well, it's because the tribe needs people on the polar extremities for the tribe to succeed. Be successful, right, yeah. to survive. It's cave, cave it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Neanderthal, yeah. caveman yeah. sort of mentality. Well, I think well Ian, Dr Ian Dunican, the sleep specialist that I've had on mm. a few times, talks about from sleep having outliers in the family oh. so that – they you can keep security around a campfire. So, for instance, I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old at time of recording. Yeah. The 10-year-old is a, you know, he goes to bed early, late and rises early and the other one's the complete opposite. Yeah. So that there's always someone around that campfire. We don't even have a bloody campfire. But, <laughs> you know, and I know that because there's a 7-year-old, you know, in the bed at 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, exactly right. Let's go. And it's hard to then put a blanket rule, mm, right, around people. And I think can't. as parents, sometimes we do that for convenience as opposed yeah, yeah, yeah. to looking at what's in the best interest of that child. Yeah. Talking about parenting, you said something during the tech presentation that you did mm. around – now, it had something to do – it was like a pyramid – no, it was like four squares, four quadrants. Mm. And there was – what were those quadrants? Do you – Is this the Jahari window, the self-awareness model or the – no, it was around having giving your kids higher support, or not kids, oh, but I yeah. looked at it from looking at my sons and going, you know mm. what, I need to provide them with challenges but also give them support because I think what I do is life's challenging for them as it is. It's mm. very challenging being a 10 and 7-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. But then I we set everything on autopilot and it's all at my pace so they're probably not getting the support they need mm. to meet those challenges. So their life must be really stressful too because of the mm. problems I put on them, you know. Mm. Mind you, you raise that as a business around a business framework and I straight away went to, went to it as a parenting framework. Oh, well done. I mean, that's part of the process, right, is kind of how do you apply this generally in your life. Mm. So that, that is the, what we call the support challenge matrix. Mm. It was originally created by McKinsey looking at you know, high-performing organisations, but you can use it for high-performing communities or families. Mm. And the idea is that the, there's always challenge in life, right? And I think I'd mentioned that there's never been a high performer leader who said the next year is going to be easier than this year, right? It just doesn't happen. <laughs> and so therefore, if we're assuming more challenge, we need the support to be able to achieve that challenge. Mm. And that support looks different, right? Mm. So sometimes it's about having the right resources and people. It's about having the right love as a parent that you're coming down the, mm. and time. Mm. It could be about giving access to technology. It could be about monetary support, right? There's lots of things. And as soon as that sort of support drops, right? Mm. So we go from being in this high-performing, high-balanced, energised, motivated environment, whether it's home or work, and then we start to drop, right? And we drop into this stressful mm. environment where people might find that there's more confrontation, there's more stress, uh, there's more agitation. Right? So then it's not even the actual result of support that drops. It could be just the perception that it is dropping. So when you talk to your 10-year-old and 7-year-old, and I've got time of recording a 13 you know two goals 13 and 10 mm. one of them might perceive that they're not getting as much support from us as they would like another one's getting almost too much mm. right but it's exactly the same so the perception is so different mm. how do we understand that for each child even just sitting down and having a conversation with them we think they're too young to understand this but they're not mm. right it's just the way that they demonstrate that and talk about it the language they use is going to be different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I asked my seven-year-old in the car yesterday. We were, we were driving down the street for something or other. I'm not sure what, but a lovely, beautiful day out there and he's just sitting there, you know, enjoying it. And I turned to him and said, what can I do for you that would make your life better or solve a problem for you? Mm. His answer was, can you buy me a Bugatti Veyron? <laughs> I said, no, I can't. Why wouldn't you ask I that? Can't do, I question. can't do that. And he goes, huh. And he goes, can I do backflips into the pool? Perhaps that can be organised for you in a safe and controlled manner. How can people build more resiliency? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. So part of that goes back to those two. Well, they're all good questions. That's why, I write them, that's why I write them out. Sorry. When it's a bad one, I'll let you know. <laughs> I'll give you one. So if we go back to the two elements of the research, right, that's say control and commitment yep. are kind of the two fundamental factors. Yep. So if we look at control, to build resilience – 
then we need to look at how do we make sure that we are in control of our emotions and control of our life and our destiny. Right. Do we believe that I control the factors around me that will lead me, my family, my community, my organisation yep. to more success? But that's not going to help a guy on, you know, on police selection for TRG or CERT or, or for mm. SAS or commando selection. Mm. That's not going to help them build resilience, is it? Being Or is it being in control? Because they're not in control. You are to walk from here to here carrying this and this. Yeah. So then the question is, what can I do that's yeah. in my control? Do I have to train harder, right? right. Do I have to make sure my sleep is good? Mm. That's in my control, right? Mm. Do I make sure my mitochondrial juices are flowing, that we've got enough charge in the mitochondria to make mm. sure that we can get the results we need mm. so that my muscles are twitching in the right way? Right? Mm. Do I need to learn about what it takes? Do I talk to people who've passed this process before? Oh, okay. So there's that kind of stuff that is in your control that you can manage, I think that sense of feeling like you're not in control is one of the worst feelings we can have. Do you know mm. that most people who have post-traumatic stress cite at some point either causal or it's a compacting mm. factor, contributing factor even, mm. that a lack of control led to their post-traumatic stress? Amazing. So, right? so something happened that they either weren't ready for or couldn't control. Mm. You can imagine the, the trauma of dealing with that and revisiting that in their minds, mm. right, you know, is so powerful. And mm. so going back to, well, if you were in that situation, and this is not a cure for everybody, but if you're in that situation, what could you have done differently? Mm. Right? And a lot of cases, the answer will be probably not much. Yeah. Right? And part of the healing process is about understanding mm. that you did what you could at mm. that point. You know, in most cases, I mean, what you guys have gone through, you know, defending our country and, and serving our country, those kind of pressures, they look very different, right, to the ones that, you know, most people in sort of the organisational world mm. might be looking at. But the principles are the same. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Mm. And so that intensity, yeah, people get post-traumatic stress disorder working in companies. Yeah. Right? They are presentation bombs and for the next 10 years you cannot get them standing up in front of a group of people, yeah, right, to talk about stuff because they yeah. relive it in their mind no, constantly. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And, I mean, there's been a softening in me from the victim-victor mentality over the last couple of years. Mm. People will know if they've listened to the podcast from the start through to now, I'm, I'm now a lot more open to hearing people have mm. that say they have post-traumatic stress from things that I would be like, come on. Yeah. But, but, I, <laughs> but I understand now it's more personalised and, you know, we saw, was it Michael... Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah. Who And, I mean, that is a beautiful thing that you put up on the screen because he had a, a complete brain implosion and could not think on his feet and was not able to – I would assume that he has some sort of post-traumatic stress from that. Absolutely. And he, So he was the – he was there on behalf of Samsung to introduce the new television screens, the new angle – Curve TV. Yeah, Curve TV. Yeah. And he's been an amazing director on some big – Hollywood blockbuster movies. Transformers and The Rock and all this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then he stood up in front and his, tele, his teleprompter froze. Yeah. And absolutely. he just had no idea what he was going to say. And it's almost that, that saying that we worked through this morning, which is about what do you do next, right, at that point. So yeah, what it. is it that you, at that piece, I mean, you talked about it just earlier, right, around resilience and that moment, right? How do you tap into that? Mm. And it's that dialogue that you have in your mind to say, okay, you know what? Teleprompter's not working. That's not in my control. What is in my control? I can just talk about my experiences, mm. right? And maybe just go off the MC or whoever was there at the time to kind of have a mm. bit of a dialogue. And so that can help to regain stability, mm. security by thinking about that control piece. So going back to that question that you had around, you know, how do you get that resilience piece? Yeah. Feeling like you're in control, huh. even though you might not be in control, mm. has a massive impact, the perception. Yeah, and every person I've asked this question of have all – at some point in answering it, have said something about the visualization of of their behavior, of what they're going to do. So, and you said go and ask people who've done it before. And I, and the most successful thing I've ever done in the military was changing over from being a sergeant to a captain. And it was the amount of inquiry that went on before that, the amount of people that I went and talked to that had sat that board, the amount of people that and trusted people that I'd gone and had coffees with and we'd sat down and we discussed every activity that they would do. And then, then I accounted for a, a perfect, you know, representation of myself on the day. But it wasn't necessarily just me, that the representation. It was all of those people 
were there. All of their solutions to the problems were at the forefront of my mind. And so what should have been a daunting and, and difficult, you know, series of tests during a day was actually quite easy. I mean, what you did there was actually one of the key elements, right, of sort of mental toughness, which is confidence in your knowledge and skills and abilities is not just about what you have today. Mm. It's about knowing that you can back yourself mm. to find out stuff that you don't know right now. Oh, I love it. And that you can actually go out there and do it. And that's what you demonstrated. There's so much. Oh, there's, Isn't there? there's heaps. Knowledge is ubiquitous, right? It's everywhere. You Google it. Just find out. There's probably a step-by-step process for that selection criteria mm. sitting on Google somewhere, right? Mm. But talking to people, reliving that, visualizing what that is, and in fact... If you're listening, Garge and I are about to write a book on this. We've just decided. Now, he doesn't know this, but we're about to write this step-by-step process. Oh, fantastic. We'll put it in the dummies guide to yeah. uh, being Bram and Gudge. The, um- <laughs> that's, where, that's where you realise you're stupid. Yeah. When you look at your bookcase and you go, oh, my God, I've bought 10 yeah. for dummies guides. <laughs> oh, I have. Uh, I'll take it. I'll take yeah. anything at the moment. The, so the key thing is about, you know, how do you go back to managing that control, mm. right? And mm. I think for me... If you get to a point where not only yourself but the people around you are able to do that, it's the support infrastructure Mm. that allows you to do that. Mm. So whether it's your mates, your tribe, whoever it's going to be, Mm. but finding people who are outside of that is also really important. You want the diversity in the thinking. I like it, yeah. Diversity of thought. mm. Mm. Um, I I have a bombshell question for you. Oh. Is personality a preference? (laughs) Is that a loaded question? What's the what would you like me to say here, Bram? <laughs> First time I'd ever heard it was today. Really? And yeah, and I have to admit of all the things that I've heard today and I have heard some amazing stuff, when I heard personality is a preference, mm. I, I suddenly thought to myself there were times where I could have done things better if I could have controlled my personality. Absolutely. So mm. in the world of psychology, mm. we would say that personality is a preferred style of behaving, right? thinking. And by preferred, you mean a fallback, it's a fallback it's a thing natural, that's going to happen. Yeah, it's a natural way of thinking. So, for example, mm. there are some people who are very much detail-oriented. Right? Right. So you put them in any situation, their natural style. task-oriented. Yeah, their natural style to understand anything could be, I'll start with the detail first mm. and then I'll build myself up, mm. right? Whereas you're going to get some other people who are highly conceptual, mm. right? You put them into a problem, they'll think, okay, where are we trying to get to with all this? Let's start with a big picture and then I'll start getting down because mm. that's their natural way of thinking. Mm. And so we can use that in a lot of ways as strengths. Mm. If we have awareness firstly that when I go into a situation, I might be naturally leaning towards my preferred style, mm. right? In some situations it might be, okay, I'm going to go into a negotiation with this real estate agent I'm pretty aggressive when it comes to negotiation. So maybe I need to soften up a little bit, right, in terms of my style. And it's just having that awareness piece. So it is typically a preferred way of style. That doesn't mean that we – it's not about ability, right? So personality is very different to ability. Right. Ability is whether you can or can't do something. Right. Right. So what we're saying is even if you have a natural style or preference, it doesn't mean that – your natural style is being detail-oriented. It doesn't mean you can't be conceptual and big-picture thinking. Mm. You can learn how to do that. So if you've got those four personality styles, you know, the DISC model, for mm. instance, and you are a task-focused extrovert, is it possible to become, to make yourself soften to be a, you know, people-focused introvert because of the situation that you're in right now? And is that not the ultimate in self-manipulation. And I love the word manipulation. You and I both use it in the same way and we're probably the only people I've heard use it. Mm. But I like to think that we can self-manipulate to get the best out of other people and then manipulate them as well to get the best out of them. Yeah, absolutely. And manipulate ourselves uh, to to kind of get that sort of outcome for for the long term, right? Yeah. So, yes, I think the key thing there is about how do we make sure that we can tap into – a way of thinking that allows us to get the best out of ourselves. Yeah. Mm. And so that means that there are some situations now where we will behave in a particular way that will get us to option A or B, right? Right. Maybe we don't want those options. Mm. Maybe we want option C, Mm. sitting over in a different area. Mm. What do I need to change in my own thinking or my own behaviour, assuming that our behaviour is driven by our feelings and our feelings is driven by our thoughts, Mm. to then get that behaviour in the right way? So... Absolutely, you can adjust and shift 
your personality style and your preferences. It takes time, mm. right? This is why even we say that personality questionnaires, typically there's an 18-month validity, right? So that means mm. typically you should be, if you want to see if there's some changes, you give it about 18 months, right? This is a bit of a litmus Are test. Are they not like horoscopes though? Sorry, are, are they, they not like horoscopes, these personality tests? Like I've done a couple and I've read yeah. someone else's and gone, you could change names and... Yeah. So the bad ones are, yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of bad tests out there. Mm. The key thing is looking at what is their two factors, validity and reliability. Mm. Reliability means if Bram was to complete this questionnaire 15 times over the next 15 days, mm. would you get consistent results? Right. Right. The second thing is, is it actually measuring what it tells you it's measuring? Mm. If this tool that you're about to do, DISC, mental toughness, whatever it is, measures those things, does the research actually validate that? Right. right? So there's no, there are lots of crap tools out there, yeah. but I think there's a number of them that are highly predictive that have yeah. shown through research. You've just got to sift through that, that stuff. You got any ideas on, on some tests that people might be able to do to see what their personality is or to understand themselves better? Yeah, there's, there's a number of them. So if you look at the mental toughness stuff, for example, yeah. there's one which is created by AQR, mm. which is the MTQ48. Okay. Now, that is a fantastic tool that looks at all these elements and resilience is covered within that um, piece. And that's a tool that gives you a good indication of sort of those commitment, confidence, challenge and control. There's other tools out there like uh, the, the Employee Thriving Index that is a fantastic tool that looks at different elements of a personality linked to leadership, mm. uh, for example. There's Hogan's personality question. You might, people might have come across the derailers mm. you know, in leadership which is basically about sometimes strengths being overdone um, in some cases. So, yeah, absolutely, there are, there are a number of these tools around. There are some that put people into boxes, which I'm not a big fan of. Uh, this is my personal mm. preference. If you've got something that puts you into a, four types of personality, mm. I think it will be more complicated than that. Yeah. They can be good for a quick snapshot, Yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily use them for – very important decisions right. need to be made. Okay. About hiring people and so forth. Yeah, cool. I want to ask you, is there such a thing as free will? Because <laughs> I want to hear what a psychologist thinks about this. Well, my, my 10-year-old would agree that there is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So is there a thing of free will? I think there are consequences. Mm. And so I think, you know, most people are able to do, living in the democracies and the worlds that we live in, you make a lot of choices mm. about stuff, but then there are consequences. If you... Free will to speed. You can speed any time you want, mm. right? There's free choice to mm. do that. But whether you might hit a pedestrian mm. or you might go and do other things, again, what is the consequence as a result, right? But are you deciding that you're speeding or is <laughs> destiny and fate deciding that you're speeding and then hitting the pedestrian? So why are rules created? Why are laws and rules created? Mm, to keep order. Keep order, right? Mm. So to avoid chaos, mm. typically. Mm. To be able to benchmark behaviour. Yeah. To be able to assume... Yeah, to assume that there's a certain kind of level of behaviour mm. that allows our society to be able to flourish. To not kill each other. Exactly, right? Mm. Mm. Now, having said that, of course, those things need to be changed and evolved over time. But free will, I think, in a lot of ways is helpful for us to feel like we've got choice, mm. which is really important. As humans, we want to feel like we've got choice you know, to do things. It's one of the worst things to, to tell a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old, right? I'm not going to give you a choice mm. in what you're going to eat for dinner, right? But magically, you give them two options and they get to choose out of the lesser of the two evils, mm. they feel a little bit more free will, right? <laughs> Again, positive manipulation. Good manipulation. It's perfect. <laughs> That's what I use as an example as well. Yeah. And I've heard you use the term probability. <laughs> let's, let's come on. Let's, first of all, is it trademarked? <laughs> Not by me, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I'd be sitting in the Bahamas if it was. No, I think that's a term from the old Six Sigma. Oh, days. really? Yeah. Okay. And so that word is a combination of two words. You know, every problem represents an opportunity. Mm. And that as a critical mindset in terms of, you know, when you're facing a problem, we all face adversity, we all mm. face challenges. Mm. But it's about how do we then reframe that problem? Mm. into creating an opportunity for ourselves. So if the economy is bad, mm. right, it, numbers are low, interest rates are high, we've got issues that are going on with uh, trade deficit, with you know, people not spending money for our business, you know, how do we attract customers? Mm. What is the opportunity for us? Mm. Right? Does it mean we get to look at a different product line? Mm. Does it mean that maybe I need to go to another market? Mm. Maybe I need to fine-tune what my customers really want. Mm. It's an opportunity maybe to go and talk to them mm. to understand what they need, right? Mm. So it's just coming up with some solutions and that, that probability mindset is something I use a lot 
at that sort of executive level works across the board. Yeah, and Jocko Willink talks about this all the time, doesn't he, when he says good, you know, and, and I mean it's simple and, and it seems to yeah. be it's – a, it's a pop culture term now too. It's like good, you know, this happened, good, you know, <laughs> but it, it's showing a positive bias, a psychological positive bias as opposed to a negative bias. Absolutely. And maybe that is reframing their personalities. Mm. You know, because generally maybe you would have a negative bias but by, by virtue of using that one word. Yes. And that brings us on to, you know, the other thing that we talked about which is the victim or victor, you know. And I'm a huge believer in controlling the narrative mm. and not being a victim for being a victim's sake. And I know that you have similar thoughts around it, don't you? Mm. Yeah. So can I ask you a question? Yeah. When is it okay to be a victim? I don't know. Honestly, I... It's a great question and I'm using that as a filler to try and think. But I'm not sure I can think of a time when, you know, even if I was in a stabbing attack or mm. if, I, if someone crashed their car into me or something like that, I'm not sure I would ever see myself as a victim. I mm. would find a way to, personally, I would find a way to make the best of that. Mm. Um, and, I mean, I, I say that because I've seen, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, I know of people who've had their legs blown off. You know, and I know I know people who've had their backs broken in, you know, ID attacks. I know people have been shot, and I very rarely have seen any of them act as victims. Yeah, yeah. you know, they they, yeah, astounding as that seems to be. Yeah. And I mean, we're, you know, what this is the other thing. I'm a Somalia, Timor, Afghan veteran. That's not that big a deal. When when I start doing research on World War One and World War Two, mm. you know, that generation. In the World War Two, you know, the guys between World War One and World War Two were called the finest generation. Mm. You look at what they went through. You can't achieve that stuff by being a victim. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know if there is a for some people perhaps there is time to be a victim. For me there's not. And I think sometimes, you know, having a sense of being in control all the time mm. can get really tiring. Yeah. Right? And that takes not only your cognitive energy, right, mm. but physical energy to also then usually to do that. And sometimes stepping back a little bit. Mm. And it could be as simple as I'm not going to drive the car. I normally drive the car on my holidays, right, with my wife. I'm just going to sit back. I'm going to sit in the back seat actually. Mm. Let one of the kids sit in the front if they're legally able to do that, right, mm. and letting go mm. of things. Mm. And sometimes it's not a negative thing. I think we sometimes have this negative connotation. It's like when we say the word manipulation, we think negative, mm. right? With victim, yes, there's a negative connotation that we have created as a society around that. But sometimes it's also in the definition of what we're talking about, it's also about letting go. Yeah. Of I'm just a banana wrapped in an orange skin, gosh. <laughs> it, it's going to taste good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. It's like yeah. you need to be comfortable in your own skin. You know, as you said today, you need to be comfortable in your own skin. And so sitting in the back seat, letting the child in the front and just saying, hey, I don't really want to drive right now and, you know, but I'm still me. I just, I'm, you know, the body armour isn't. And I've taught, I've written this in, in this leadership book about body armour mm. and how, you know, and I use body armour as an, an analogy because mm. in the military we, or in special forces in particular, we wear body armour and, and that's who we are. Yeah. I've got this body armour on. It's identity. This right? stuff on this stuff on here will fuck you up, <laughs> right? And then I get out into the corporate sector. I don't have that body armor on anymore. And yet, I was doing some work with a client a long time ago. I'm, I've grown since then. <laughs> and the client told me that they knew boats, you know, about a certain thing. It was about it was it was in particular it was about notification teams if there was one of their workers was killed. And I straight away put my body armor back on and said, "You wouldn't know anything about this. We did this and we did that and blah blah blah." Yeah. And I remember feeling insanely embarrassed after it mm. and going, wow, I really did not handle that well. I went and reverted to the old body armour of who I am mm. as opposed to the body armour that I need now is open and encouraging and let's talk about it, you know. Mm. And, and it was a very profound moment for me really, that, that whole – and so body armour is an analogy for, you know, if you're a police officer, you're a police officer when you're off duty, but you're not wearing any of the paraphernalia. Yeah. But that's who you are. Mm. And we get so we get so locked into these identities that mm. when people leave these workplaces, they leave these things, they leave the police force, they leave the fire brigade, they leave the army. Mm. They're still trying to be that person without any of the structural the infrastructural support network around them. You aren't that person. Yeah. Take your yeah. body armor off. But you have to be comfortable in the in the skin that you're in. Yes. As a human. Absolutely. That's difficult. 
So there was a lot of this work was done actually in, in the mid-1940s. It's talking about the Second World War, right? Mm. There was a guy called Bernard Haldane who was the professor of management at Harvard and he was given this challenge by the US government because all these tens of thousands of troops were coming back from the war mm. and the government had no way of knowing where to put all these people back into society, right? So this guy, Bernard, actually came up with this process called the seven stories. And the seven stories is a way of thinking through something called motivated skills. Now, motivated skills are the things that you enjoy doing and the things that you are good at, right? Let's look at a real-life example. You know, I do a lot of work in sort of executive MBA schools, right? And one of the things that comes up is a lot of people around their mid-30s have this little mini crisis, right, about right. what am I going to do with my life and where am I going? Mm. There's a lot of accountants who fall into this bracket, mm. right? Now, people get into accounting because they're good at numbers, right, and they kind of have an affinity with numbers. You go and ask a 35-year-old accountant, are you passionate about accounting? And most of them will not really agree, right? Mm. So it's about then reinventing and finding out what are the elements that I've been good at that I can take forward into these next opportunities. Yeah, right. You know? In the same way, what are those motivated skills that you might take from the military to then apply into other life? Right. right? And it's understanding what those things are because you're right. It's part of your identity. You, you, start of, you, sort, of, you sort of created this, this entire integrated version of yourself. Mm. Right? So it's finding out what those things are and there's a process mm. around doing that, which can help. And we do that a lot with helping people to transition into different careers. Yeah. So that, that's a really simple way of Which doing makes it. sense to me because I'm a creative now. Mm. I certainly wasn't because it would have been frowned upon. But but weren't you creative? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah, you yeah but, been, right? but you wouldn't know because yeah. you would – and you would stifle some of it, but some of it is the creativity of writing the orders mm. or building the briefs for a general, you know, building a slide deck of moving parts, creating a story and a narrative. And now I do that, I, you know, I write books, so I – Produce the podcast. It's awesome. Yeah, well, it's it's all the things that I loved in the in the army that I'm now doing in my and it's it's the same. I see people who are who own gyms, and I mean good gyms, not just hack things like. And these are physical. These aren't physical training instructors from the army. These are people who loved that part of their army experience. So when they get out, they do that. Yeah, they monetize it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, what you've done successfully is actually taken those motivated skills, mm. right, and then start to apply them in other areas of your life. Mm. Where a lot of people can get undone is that they don't know how to identify mm. what those things are, mm. and then they start thinking that they should be doing something else, mm. and then that that's where people can get into trouble, and it doesn't tend to lead to long term success, mm. right? So when we talk to, about commitment, mm. believing in a purpose, you know, why am I doing this? Mm. Right? Why is it important that I need to go to the world and run a podcast mm. around resilience and mental toughness and leadership and values based approach to life? It's because you actually believe in it, yeah, right? And this is core of your fabric yeah so be better than you were yesterday absolutely yeah right and so then that, that principle then runs across everything so regardless of the obstacles you face mm. right mm -hmm. you are more likely to invest energy and time mm. to overcoming them than someone who's faking it right who's just kind of doing it because they think oh i could make, make money a bit of money yeah, yeah 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 exactly no it makes sense to me mm. gosh where can people find out more about compass and tech well now that I'm getting into social media, probably, <laughs> probably onto um, uh, Instagram. No, but um, look, I think about tech, the Executive Connection have a fantastic website that allows you to be able to get a sense of what some of the benefits are of having like-minded people mm. around you. Mentors. Uh, mentors, absolutely. Yep. And your peers who you can share stuff with that you don't get a chance to share with other people. Mm. And so, look, I've been very privileged that I've been involved with them, you know, to run these masterclasses around the country. I met some fascinating people. Mm. Compass has a website, Compass Consultancy. With a K. Um, well, with a K, yeah. Mm. And I think, you know, there are so many organisations like us, you know, trying to go around and do good stuff. Mm. Um, and it's a wonderful thing mm. to see. I'm really proud about that. Mm. And if there's any small things that we can be doing to add some positivity to the world, mm. um, you know, we'll continue to do that. Love it. Positivity. Who would have thought? Positivity. <laughs> Lacking chaos. I want to thank you for being on the Warrior You podcast. Hopefully I'll be able to reciprocate at some point. Thank you, mate. It's been a and privilege. Pleasure. Yeah. yeah, and thanks for inviting me to the executive – what is it? The executive, executive connection. Connection. Tech. With yeah. a K. All these yeah, – The executive connection with a C. Compass with a K. <laughs> Compass with a K. Yeah, no, it was great to see you in action today. Thanks very much. Thank you, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. I listened to you all the way from Abu Dhabi to Dubai. God, you poor bastard. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thank mate. Righto, let me just wrap a few things up. 
Before I go, I just want to let you know that I'm teamed up with Patreon. This is so that you can donate assistance to the podcast. Obviously, putting all this together each week does come at a financial and a time cost. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash warrior you and you can throw in whatever you feel like. It's greatly appreciated. And there are some cool giveaways on the site too for different tiers of sponsorship. So please check it out. Um, thanks to my newest patron, Patreon donator, Marcus, for the $5 a month. Cheers, brother. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm just amazed that anyone's actually listening to the podcast at the end here to even go to Patreon. But obviously you did, so cheers, man. Righto, thanks everyone. And remember, live a life worth living. Catch you later. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.